Well, if you have a Bible, please turn to Acts chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, they are under the chairs. You can use uh, one of the church Bibles. We finally wrapped up the first two chapters of, of the book of Acts and some wonderful, important, foundational truth there. And I love the, I love the progression. I love what we saw as Brother Paul yeah, uh, last week wrapped up the chapter we were, we, we were seeing this mighty supernatural work of the Lord Jesus from heaven as he poured out his spirit upon the church there and the signs, the mighty acts of God were seen by all. And God does this incredible work as he draws and calls and saves some 3,000 souls But then what we see that follows after this supernatural, extraordinary, miraculous work is something very ordinary. They devote themselves to the means of grace. And we see that instantly after the miracle of regeneration happens, the ordinary church life begins. The wonderful life of the church, word, sacrament, prayer, and the communion of God's people. And we see now today the ministry of the apostles the apostles post-resurrection, post-ascension, and post-Pentecost is now beginning as they get into their lives. And so let's look now in Acts chapter 3, and I'll begin in verse 1. Hear now God's word. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. This is the word of the Lord, and we say, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we come now to the preaching of your word, and so we come to you for help, Lord. Would you bless the preacher? Not the preacher, but the preached word. Lord, would you use this message, would you use your word and the exposition of it for your glory? Firstly, Lord, that you would be exalted, that as, as our children have been learning, that, our, that your name would be honored by us and by all men. Um, would you make your name great today? Would you extol your mighty works before us? Um, Lord, I pray that you would bless the hearing of the word, that that as we hear your word preached, that we might be transformed, 
that we might hear the very words of God declared today and that our souls might be changed, that we might be moved from sinner to saint more and more, more into your likeness, that we might be turned away from that old man and made more anew in Christ. Um, Grow us in our faith, Lord. Help us to believe. Help us where our, our faith is is, is shaky or weak. Um, help where our hearts are half-hearted and, and weak. Help us where our devotion is lacking, Lord. Be with us today. Encourage us today. Fill us with your truth. May we see Christ. May we behold Him in His glory, and may we be forever changed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're seeing a pattern in, in the book of Acts that is a pattern all throughout the Bible. And it is a pattern of how God reveals himself to men, a pattern of revelation. And we see very often in the Bible that God does deed or act revelation. He does things, supernatural things. Basically, the, the God of heaven breaks into this world in a supernatural way, and he does things that are beyond nature what we call a miracle, right? God reveals himself in acts and in deeds. And this revelation is followed then by word revelation. He comments and interprets those things that he did. And what that tells us is that God's works need to be interpreted for us. They're not self-interpreting. God comments on the things he does. He explains them to us. They have power and things happen in and of themselves, i.e. the cross, but we have to be told and explained as to what exactly took place. So God does act or deed revelation and then God comments on his acts. At times by a prophet, a preacher, an apostle in time and space, but then those words are inscripturated for us. So God acts, there is word revelation, and this demands a response. When you see the work of God, when you hear the word of God, we are summoned them to to respond. Think about the mighty acts of God in the beginning of the Bible. We have the creation account. God in six days makes everything out of nothing. And he rests on the seventh day. And then we read that sin enters the world. And he promises a redeemer that will one day come to crush the head of the serpent. Uh, we see in, Acts, in, in, in Genesis chapter 6, the beginning of the story of a worldwide flood. That all die except one family. We see an account of a tower, a mighty tower that is being built. And God scatters the people and sends them off into different languages, into different nations. We see God call a man named Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and tells him to go to a place that he will show him and he promises that through his seed there will be a nation blessing son that will come. Uh, We see him working through Isaac and Jacob. We see him sending Joseph to Egypt and then the rest of the family and 400 years later we see him calling a man named Moses. Now, I mention all of that to say that all of those mighty acts of God took place before they were ever penned in Scripture. Because Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the the law, the Pentateuch, written by Moses. 
So these acts happened in time and space, and then God commissions Moses to speak about them, to write about them, and God interprets those acts for us. And then we're summoned to respond. We think about the burning bush. Moses saw with his eyes the supernatural manifestation of God, and then God interpreted what he saw. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. And, and Moses is, a response is demanded. What do you do? You have to respond in some way to this revelation. The cross of Christ. The facts of the cross for us are insufficient. We hear the story about a Jewish man 2,000 years ago that did some, did some incredible things, was arrested, condemned, executed, and even the fact that he rose from the dead. But God has to then interpret these acts. He then speaks about what he has done. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. We need to hear those words. So God acts. He interprets his acts with infallible words. And then we are summoned to respond to that revelation. We saw this in the Pentecost event. Signs and wonders were performed. The spirit was poured out. And then what happened? Peter stood up. And Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, began to interpret those acts and then also extol the God that has done those mighty acts. And a response was required, and a response came, right? Before he even gave the call, they said, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're seeing this same pattern here now before us in this passage. Deed, act, revelation, followed by word, revelation, followed by the necessity of a response from the witnesses. So what we're going to do today is consider the deed or act revelation. And then next week we'll follow, we'll look at Peter's sermon, Peter's second sermon in the book of Acts. And so I need an outline, just how I function um, it's helpful for me. So my outline is this, the man, the miracle, and the work of the Messiah that we are meant to see there. The man, the miracle, and the work of the Messiah. We see the apostles now in our story going up to the temple. It says that it is the ninth hour. If we were to say today it's the ninth hour, we'd probably think it was either 9 a.m. or 9 p.m. They started their day as they would count it at 6 o'clock in the morning, basically at sunup. And so the third hour would be 9 a.m., 6th hour, noon, ninth hour here is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And they're going up to the temple for the evening sacrifice. Every day there was morning and evening sacrifices at the temple, and the Jews would engage at this time in morning and evening prayer. This is a pattern every day. As an aside, this is why many Christian traditions over the years have practiced, as we seek to do here Morning and evening worship, because the, the apostles immediately emulated what they had done as they worshiped morning and evening. And after the temple was destroyed, many kept this pattern. Not all have, but the Reformed tradition definitely has. And so they go to the temple and they encounter this man. Probably many men sitting outside of the temple. Probably many men that they would see on the street begging for alms, as you might in your day today see many man on the side of the road at, at opportune places and at opportune times seeking some sort of handout. Um, God tells us in the next chapter of Acts chapter 4 in verse 22 
that this man is over 40 years old that's here sitting at the beautiful gate. And we read that he's lame from birth. Now, exactly what this means, is he paralyzed? Is one of his legs um, not functioning? We're not exactly sure, but it's bad enough that it says they carry him there. So this is not a man that walks, at least not with any strength. He's been like this from birth. He's always been in this condition. This is all that he knows. And I have to imagine a man that's 40 years old, that's never used his legs as they are intended to be used, would be very weak. And his legs would be mostly skin and bones. His joints have never sustained the weight of his body as they were intended to. And so he's in a, in a, in a difficult state here, a very weakened state. And, and, and seeing Peter and John, we read in verse 3, about to go into the temple, he asked them to receive alms. He asked them for some type of handout. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Now this had to be an incredible thing to behold. Certainly an act of faith on behalf of Peter, on behalf of the man. We'll talk about that shortly But the first thing that I just want to draw our attention to is is the compassion of Peter and thus the compassion of the Lord. These are his disciples. Uh, We know that Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the apostles sat under the most incredible ministry training that ever anyone could ever imagine to sit under. They sat under three years of the theological seminary of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing compares to the training they had, what they witnessed, how, how, how they perceived the heart of God as they, as they beheld the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. As he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so he saw his Lord, I would imagine, be compassionate. He saw his Lord love the least of these. And so Peter has compassion on this man. How easy is it, church, to, to walk by someone in this situation and not really even bat an eye? To see someone in the ground, in the dirt, to see them filthy, covered in sores, to see them maybe even out of their mind, and to just be a little bit jaded, a little bit cynical. To, not, to lack really true love, true compassion, true concern. And, and if we're honest, maybe we even walk by and we have many assumptions, right, that sort of work in our mind immediately as we look at someone probably in this situation. Maybe we think to ourselves, this, this guy doesn't even want to work. Look at him. He could get a job. He could care for himself. Or maybe we think he's on drugs. Clearly, he's out of his mind. He's, he's addicted to all sorts of intoxicants. Or maybe we see him and he looks fairly healthy and, and, and we think to ourselves, this guy wants to live on the street. He's happy to be here. I'm not, he's a mooch. I'm not, I'm not giving him my... My money, I work hard for my money. Or maybe we look at him and we say, this is his bed that he's lying in. He did this to himself. It's his fault. Certainly the decisions of life have led him to this point. Plenty of ways that he could get his life together. Plenty of resources out there. 
these are all maybe true, right? These things that we, that we think. And Peter could have said something very similar. He could have said, hey, the last ten guys that I saw walking up to the temple, they all asked the same thing. They all needed a handout, and I don't have anything. And he could have added to this man, don't you know that it's the, it's the time of prayers, and I'm busy going to worship the Lord, and God is more important than you here on your mat. I've got things to do. I need to glorify God and go and honor Him and offer my sacrifice and pray. Way more important. But he has compassion. He stops and he loves this man. He serves this man. And I think it's, it's plain in the New Testament that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to be merciful as he is merciful. We're called to love the least of these, right? We're, we're, we're told to feed the poor and clothe the, the, the cold and to care for orphans and widows. We're called to not neglect to share that which we have, that which God has given us. And Peter, having sat under the ministry of the Lord Jesus, saw, Pete, or saw our Lord do the unthinkable as he would reach out and touch the flesh of a leper. Actually, touch a leper's skin. Unthinkable in his day. You know the story that the leper was an outcast of society, and if they came around people, they had to walk and yell out, unclean, unclean, unclean. Basically, I am polluted, defiled, stay away from me. You know, we experienced a little taste of this a few years ago with the whole social distancing. And God forbid in a store you sneezed or coughed and got the attention of the, of the masses as if you should be crying out unclean. But Jesus was, was willing to step into that uncomfortable zone and even touch those that were polluted with illness and heal them. Jesus broke bread with publicans and tax collectors and harlots. And don't forget, church, that such were some of you. Such were some of us, right? Those outcasts, those, those unlovable people, those that society maybe didn't really want a whole lot to do with. Or maybe we looked very well to do, but we were full of pride and self-righteousness. We, we looked down our nose at all of those other people out there. And the Lord Jesus was compassionate and gracious to come to us in our hour of need, in our time of, of weakness. And I think there's a word for us here to administer the compassion of Christ. In all of our busyness, in all of our self-importance, in all of our cynical heart, I, I get all the things of the things that we see on the street and, and, and elsewhere, the problems, I get it. But still, I believe the Lord wants us to have a, a heart. He wants us to love those that others won't love. Peter says to him, next I want, to show, I want us to see the power and authority of the name of Jesus. In verse 6, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And so in the name of Jesus, this man is healed. I think this teaching, this concept of the name of Jesus has been often misused, maybe abused even. Sometimes we think that the name of Jesus is sort of a magical incantation, that if I say something, I declare something, and I have faith, I believe it, and then I say in the name of Jesus, God will do it, or it will happen. Or maybe I, 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 he even has to. 
because I've, I've prayed in Jesus' name, and I've prayed in faith. I've prayed believing, and so he must do that which I say, or he will always, as if I can declare things simply because I added in the name of Jesus. I don't think that's what Peter's doing at all. I think rather what Peter's doing is he is declaring the name, the, the person that the source of the power here is none other than Jesus himself. Peter's claiming that he has no inherent authority, no inherent power in himself, but Jesus does, and Jesus works. And so that tells us, as we've been seeing in the book of Acts, and we'll see all throughout, that Jesus is still at work. Remember he told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses, and you will receive power, he told them, when the Spirit comes and power they have received. You, you will act as my representatives and my ambassadors. And they do. Right? You remember in Acts chapter 2, as Peter gives that incredible sermon that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. He is enthroned in heaven. And he says, this spirit, this that you've seen here today, he has poured this out. He has done this work from his ascended place of glory. It is in the authority and power of Jesus that many were saved. You remember in Acts chapter 1, pop quiz time, who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Who wrote the book of Luke? Luke. <laughs> and so the book of Acts is volume 2, right? The book of Acts is book 2. And in the beginning, the very first verse, remember Luke said this, in the first book in the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is that, O Theophilus, in this second book, I am dealing with all that Jesus continued to do and continued to teach, but now from his ascended place of glory, seated at the right hand of the Father. And so Jesus is healing, and Jesus is drawing, and Jesus is saving men from heaven through His Spirit-empowered witnesses. We've heard this and we'll continue to hear this in the book of Acts. And I repeat it again today, church, because I think it should be encouraging to us. Because Jesus Christ has promised to build His church. Amen? That is a promise that He will fulfill. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against Christ's war church as the church militant, engages this world. Jesus has promised that when his name is preached, when he is preached, that men will grow in spiritual maturity. I love Paul's words in Colossians 1. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So there's a sanctifying effect when, when preaching is happening in the name of Jesus. And when Christ is preached, men will be changed. When his name is proclaimed, all that call upon that name will find salvation. Any that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And thus, when we minister, church, in the name of Christ, under the authority and under the power of Jesus, by faith, Christ is at work. Through our feeble efforts, through our anxieties, through our fears, through our weak devotion, 
Christ is at work. I wonder, I wonder if we're honest with ourselves at times, when you look someone in the eye and you tell them that you can have the hope of forgiveness of your sins now, that God can redeem you today in this moment that today can be the day of salvation if you would only turn and repent. Do you believe that right then and there, Jesus might just very well do that for them? Or do we say it, believe that it's true, but, but not really sure of the power of those words, of the power of the authority of God's word proclaimed to dead souls? When you tell a friend who long ago walked away from Jesus, living in licentiousness, that this day God will rescue you from your bondage. This day, if you should repent, God will redeem you. God will forgive you of your apostasy even. Do we believe that in that moment he may very well work by the power of his spirit? Do you believe, Christian, that Christ is working from his ascended place of glory through you as his minister when you declare the gospel, when you minister in his name? If you do, you will be dangerous in this world. You will be dangerous. Peter believed God's promise. Be my witness. You will receive power and I will build my church. Now, I don't believe that this text is warrant for us, that we are to be faith healers, that our main job is to go around commanding people to be healed, that we declare in the name of Jesus that people's bodies be restored in a moment. Do we pray for healing? Yes and amen. We're told to do that. But I don't believe that this is our ministry, that this is what we are to go and do. I would actually discourage you from grabbing someone's hand and And saying, rise in Jesus' name. To be presumptuous in that manner that Jesus will in that moment heal. Our ministry is not one ultimately of physical restoration. It is a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us, Paul says, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. Do not diminish, church, in your own mind, the power of Christ as he works through his spirit-empowered witnesses. The strength is not in you and I. Amen? Praise God for that. (laughs) Praise God for that. It's not in our power of persuasion, but it is in the authority of the name of Jesus Christ and the spirit that is in us and working through us. And we may not have silver and gold in that moment. We likely, as we encounter the stranger on the street, wherever they may be, in the cubicle at work, at the, wherever you encounter someone, we may not have what that person wants and thinks that they need. But what we do have, we ought to freely give. What we do have, we ought to freely give. Because whether they realize it or not, we have what they need. Amen. We have the main thing that every soul on this earth needs. And Peter says, what I have, I give to you freely. Whether it be the tax collector who's high and lofty and is rich and hangs out at the fanciest of places, or whether it's 
the harlot that is broken and destitute and spent and used up by this world, we have the greatest gift. We have the gospel. And every time that Christ is pleased to use that gospel by the power of His Spirit, it will be effectual. It may be in that moment, it may be 20 years later, as that person finds himself in trouble and calls upon the name of the Lord. And so we've seen the man, we've seen the the name of Jesus that we as Christ minister in, the authority and power that, that, that the name of Jesus conveys. And now the miracle. And we see here the reality of true divine healing. Verse 6, Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with him. Walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So Peter has no gold. He has no silver. But he offers him what he has. And what he has is the power and authority of the name of Jesus Christ. And he basically commands him here to be healed. It's an incredible sight. He commands him to stand up. And so we see three things here in this miracle. First, the immediacy of it. It happens in a moment. He says, stand up. And that healing is happening as soon as his hand is grabbing him. And this man, as we'll see, not only stands, but he leaps off the ground, off of his mat that he's been on for 40 years. It happens in a moment. There's no progression There's no process here. There's no wondering if something actually supernatural has happened. But in a moment's time, God's man, God's apostle, commands this man to stand, and he's up. We see also then the completeness of this miracle. I mean, look at what he's doing. He's leaping up from, from the beginning. Peter reaches out his hand, and he goes to pull, and this man is not reluctant. He doesn't pull his hand away, but he leaps up out of his seat, off the ground. And then he stands, something he has not done for 40 years with this strength, on his joints, in this way, standing upright, and then he begins to walk. And what does he do? I love what he does. He goes right into the temple. Now, there's a good chance that this man's never been in the temple. He sat at the gate. He's he's begged alms there, but he's not been in the temple. And he goes straight into the temple, and he's walking, and he's leaping, and he's praising God. This is a a thorough healing, a complete healing. God has done a work, and all see it. And we see that they they, they flee, they run to see what has happened. And so thirdly, we see the certainty then. There's no question if something has happened. It's evident for all to see. They saw this man, they knew who he was. He was at the gate, he was in the dirt, sitting there on his mat, and now here he is. He's jumping up and down. He's praising the Lord His God. There's no questioning. There's no controversy. It's immediate, complete, and certain. Now, I think there's multiple reasons for this this miracle. 
Why does he do this? I don't want to lose sight of Peter loving this man. I don't want to look past that. The sign, I think, has, there's more taking place. But Peter sees a man on the ground, and he loves him, and he serves him, and he does what he can for him. He, he heals him, which I think has more results than just physical healing. But regardless, Peter serves this man in the way that he is able to. I don't have silver and gold, but what I do have, I give you. And he blesses him. He has compassion on him. But I also think that this miracle is meant to point to something greater. Right? The, the deed, act, remember, the deed or act revelation of God is always followed by word revelation. An infallible word interprets what is happening. And it's having its effect because they've ran over now to see what is happening. All of a sudden, Peter has an audience. Peter has the opportunity to preach. We'll see that next week. Realize, though, church, this whole idea of revelation, deed, act, revelation, word, revelation, followed then by the need of response, is not just for those that were there. It's actually for everyone because it's in the word. Right. If you think about the actual eyewitnesses to God's miraculous acts, they're very few. How many men actually saw Christ crucified? Not that many. How many saw him resurrected around 500? How many saw Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration? Three. Plus Elijah, Moses. How many saw the Holy Spirit Descend like a dove and hear the word of the Father at Jesus' baptism. Very few. How many saw the Red Sea split? How many saw the ten plagues of Exodus, in the Exodus? In the scope of human history, a minuscule percentile. But we have them in the word. Right? We have God's mighty deeds in the word. And then we have God's mighty words as he interprets those acts. And then later... Scripture writers come and comment more on those acts, giving us more information. And thus, a response is demanded. And I point that all out to say, these acts of God are saving, they're redemptive, they are transformative, not just being there and seeing them, but reading them on the page. To read that Jesus Christ healed a lame man from his birth, and then to read about the glory of God, demands that we, even now, here, respond in some sense. We'll get to that. Thirdly, then, the Messiah, the work of the Messiah that we are meant to look to. This sign, this miracle, once again, I think, points to something more. And he took him by the right hand, verse 7, and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now he took him by his hand. The, this man was not reluctant, it seems, right? He didn't slap away his hand. He didn't say, get away from me and yell at him. How dare you? He reached out. He, he, he had to have some measure of faith here as he hears restoration in the name of Jesus and he reaches out. There's a sort of ambiguous text in next week's sermon that it is through faith in Jesus that this happens. But the text doesn't say explicitly whose faith. Is it Peter or is it the layman? I think the answer is yes. 
Peter's faith to reach out and grab, and the man's faith to reach up and stand up. And God does this wonderful act. And it says here that he began to praise the Lord. I wonder what he said. I wonder what he, what he sung. I wonder if he was reciting the words of Psalm 135. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise. O servants of the Lord who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Or maybe he was reciting the prophetic words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 35. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. I believe this is an act of faith on behalf of the man. He, he, he reaches out, he believes that he can be healed, and he stands up, and the very first thing he does is follows him into the temple and praises the name of the Lord, gives glory to God for him being healed. But what are we being shown? What are we meant to see? We will get to the word revelation, but I think there is still much to glean from this act of God. More that we are supposed to see than simply a man being, re- being healed. What are we meant to learn about the Messiah? What are we meant to learn about this new creation era that he has begun? What are we to learn about the power of his resurrection? I have a few thoughts to wrap this up. Firstly, those that reach out to Christ in faith are received. Those that reach out to the Lord Jesus in faith, he receives to himself. I believe it was Martin Luther that said that faith is an empty, open hand reaching out to God, laying hold of the promise of the gospel. And all that reach out in faith, whether it's a beggar on the side of the road, destitute and in despair, or the proud rich man that everyone esteems and looks up to and wishes they had his life, any reach out, believing that God can heal, believing that God will save and restore, they will be received at any time. With humble, penitent faith, God receives sinners to himself that come in faith. Secondly, I believe we're seeing here that salvation is the beginning of a completely new life. Salvation is the beginning of a completely new life. This man's life from this point was forever changed. And I'm thinking here physically. Things that he had never been able to do, he's now able to enjoy. For the first time in his life, he can take care of himself. He can earn a living. He can go to work. He can provide for himself. And as one comes to saving faith, our lives are forever changed. Amen? It is the beginning of something new, of something beautiful, of a new direction, a new path, a new agenda, if you will, a new Lord, new principles, new priorities. And this man's life, from that point, as he reached out his hand to Jesus, is completely new. Thirdly, salvation in Christ means a new identity, a new identity. He was a cripple. He was an outcast. He was someone that had no hope of being a normal contributor to 
society. He was looked down upon. He was treated probably poorly at times. He had to humble himself in the most humbling of way to ask someone to care for his most basic of needs. And in a moment of time, he has a new life. He's a new person. He, he can stand and walk with men as he has never stood and walked with men before. And the truth, Christian, is this. If you are in Christ, you are not who you once were. Amen? You are not who you once were. But you have a new name, a new identity. You are no longer identified by those things which marked you before. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think maybe we need to realize this a bit more, walk in this a bit more, that I am new in Jesus. I may fall into the same temptations that I fell into previously, but I am not that old man. I am not identified by the bondage of my sin any longer. We were discussing this, some of the guys this past week, and rightly and necessarily in the Reformed world, we have emphasized total depravity and because it's neglected in many circles, but maybe we've gone too far. We have ministries entitled Depraved Wretch. That's not who we are in Christ. We're new in Christ. That is not how we are identified any longer. We still sin. Yes, we still need to repent, most certainly. But we are not identified by our sin and our transgressions. We are identified by the risen Christ who has saved us. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Pastor Jeff Durbin out of um, Arizona, Apologia Church. And I love hearing his testimony, some of the very oldest days of his ministry and he began at a, at a drug rehab, and it was at a, something of a hospital in an interesting environment where there, he was overseeing a Christian rehab and a secular rehab in the same facility, and these groups would somehow cross over. And if you know anything about Jeff Durbin, he's not going to withhold the gospel on the secular side, I'd imagine. And so he would get in trouble at times because he was bringing gospel into what was supposed to be secular environment. But I love the story of his people that were in his ministry that were being converted. Now, if you've ever heard the stereotype or what have you about an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, maybe you've been to one, you know the phrase everyone says, my name is Brett and I am what? I'm an alcoholic or addicted to this or that, Narcotics Anonymous, whatever the thing is. And you can go into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and you can have a man stand up and take a 15 20, 25-year chip, 20 years of sobriety, and say, I'm James, and I'm an alcoholic. Identifying still with that bondage. Now, there's some, there's some good in acknowledging our sin and our addictive tendencies. But these folks that were getting converted under the ministry of Durban were, were coming into that group, and it was, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. And then it was, hi, I'm Jessica, and I'm new in Christ. I'm no longer an alcoholic. I'm no longer marked and identified by my sin. I'm marked and identified by Christ. I'm a new creation. And salvation in Christ, friend, beloved, means a new 
identity. You are not who you once were. Adam is dead. Adam is buried. And a new man has been raised. Number four, salvation is the restoration of the whole man. The whole man. When Jesus heals the sick, they are fully and completely restored. And it's incredible to imagine just thinking about the implications. Meditate on this healing later. And think about a man who has been who has been lame for 40 years. He's never walked. He's never leapt. He's never stood upright as he does here. He's never walked with other men with his shoulders high. He's never been into the temple. His joints, his knees, his ankles have never held the weight of his body in his entire life. He may very well never have jumped a day in his life. And when Christ heals him, he leaps out of his seat and he's jumping. And I'm going to add something to the text. I think he may even be clicking his heels. He's so excited here. But we see that he's fully restored. He is fully made new. And salvation is the restoration of the whole man. When Jesus saves a soul, it is whole soul restoration. The whole man embracing and transformed by the whole Christ. The mind renewed, the heart transplanted, the affections transformed, the will unshackled. The soul renovated, man set free from the power of sin, the penalty of sin. Praise God, the pleasure of sin has a new taste. And we see that pictured here in this man's healing, that when one reaches out to Christ in faith, the whole man is made new, the whole man is restored. Fifthly, there is power in the word of God proclaimed in faith and empowered by the Spirit. The words of Jesus and the words of Scripture rightly preached by spirit-filled preachers is able to raise the dead. Amen? Able to raise the spiritually dead from their eternal tomb to new life. The words of Jesus declared in faith, empowered by the Spirit, are able to change hardened hearts, are able to save the soul, renew the mind, to, to root out pet sins that have, that have ensnared us for years. The Word of God, empowered by the Spirit, is able to restore your broken marriage and testify to God's grace to heal a home. The Word of God, empowered by the Spirit, can, can reconcile your severed relationships, can mend the mind of the residual effects of abuse and suffering. Because the Word of God is alive. Amen? The Word of God is living and active and powerful and sharper than even a two-edged sword. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart of a man. Brother Paul prayed for the saints in Kenya. And if you, if you may have saw the video. I shared it on our Facebook page. If you haven't, I encourage you to go there and look at the videos our brother John Smith, he's visited us here a number of times, ministers in central Washington. He's a southern Oregonian at heart, but the Lord took him away from us. Um, but he had this wonderful opportunity to go to Africa, him and his co-elder. I still haven't got all the information on how this came about. But in the video, you see what your mind imagines in a church in Africa. A hut with dirt on the floor with people that are exuberant for Jesus Christ. Singing praising and that moment comes when they're given bibles in their hands and the pastor is preaching when you when you wake up in the morning 
Study the Word of God. When you go to bed, study the Word of God. And they're filled with joy because they've been given one Bible in their language, one copy of God's Word. And they know that in that text is life. Is life. It's sad how, 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 how duty-bound we can become to the Scriptures. We have to check our box to do our reading plan for the day and then move on with, their, with our day. Failing to see that there's life in the text. There's life on the page. Transformative power in the words as we hear them preach and as we read them to our own soul. Sixthly and finally, the mighty acts and deeds of Christ demand a response. There can be no sitting on the fence when it comes to this revelation. And I'm not only talking about then. Certainly then. You see a man healed, you hear Christ preach, you must respond. But remember, those stories, those redemptive acts have been recorded and scripturated for us, and they are transformative and redemptive now as they're read and as they're preached. And a text like this demands a response, even from us today. Either Jesus Christ is a liar and the word of God is not true, or he healed a man that was lame from birth and is God in the flesh and worthy of worship. Amen. There is no neutral ground. There's no room here to say that Jesus was a wise sage. He was a wonderful teacher like many of the other teachers because the word of God does not allow that. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. I am. And they didn't pat him on the back and say, praise God, brother. They picked up stones to take his life. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Imagine saying that to a strict monotheistic Jew. If you've seen me, you've seen Yahweh. The, 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 the doubting apostle, Thomas, said, finally, my Lord and my God Anyone would rebuke a man if he said that to them. And Jesus receives his worship, that he is Lord and he is God. This text, these mighty deeds of God, they demand a response from us, folks. They demand that we worship this Christ. They demand our devotion. They demand our allegiance. If he really is who he says he is, then he is worthy, church. Amen? He's worthy of our very lives. So let us see Him as He is. Let us worship Him with whole-souled devotion. And if you're here and you're not in Christ, this Christ demands a response. You can't play the fence. There's not a neutral ground for you to stand upon. You either reject what He's done, or you see and you bow the knee and you repent and you worship. And we'll see. That's Peter's call next week, ultimately. Repent and be refreshed by the presence of the Lord. Let's pray.